Welcome to the Two Cities podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 119. In this episode, we're talking about theology and reproductive loss with Dr. Karen O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is program leader for contemporary spirituality studies at Serum College and the author of The Dark Womb, Reconceiving Theology Through Reproductive Loss, published by SEM Press. And I'll just give a quick content warning at the beginning of this episode. We'll be talking about some sensitive themes, including miscarriage and infertility. So just want to make our listeners aware of that before we get going. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Logan Williams and myself, Dr. Grace Emmett. So I really, really loved recording this episode and very grateful to Dr. O'Donnell for giving her time to come on and chat to us. I think one of my favourite things um, that I took away from this was her encouragement that all theological work is embodied. And she's modelling that in a very practical way in this book, thinking about what does it mean to do theology from the perspective of the miscarrying body? So she's bringing her personal perspective to bear. But there's also a lot in this, I think, for people who haven't experienced reproductive loss, don't know that sort of personally, in terms of just thinking about how how might we reimagine some aspects of theological discourse from a different perspective of embodiment. And she sort of dwells on the fact that this is a body which is both the site of life and death, that it sort of evades different binaries, can sort of hold this confusing confusing tension within it. And in some ways, it's an invitation to dwell in Holy Saturday, um, that space in between uh, the cross and the resurrection, but to sort of sit in that in-between space that is kind of between two different things, which I thought was just a really powerful reflection. Uh, How about for you, Logan? One of the many things I liked about this episode was Dr. O'Donnell's emphasis that we shouldn't rush to redemption or rush to reconciliation or rush to eschatology. One of the things that we talk about is how Christians are really uncomfortable with just sitting with pain. Often you'll hear refrains like, ah, but it will be redeemed or, oh, uh, you know, maybe you'll have kids in the future, which will redeem that or whatever. But in many respects, once you experience reproductive loss, there's no erasing that experience. So we, we talk about how, uh, what it looks like to sit with that difficulty, sit with that pain, sit with the trauma if it comes with it, uh, and how not to try to erase it or make it go away because of a future hope or, or some kind of reconciliation. So I really appreciated the nuance she brings to teaching us and how to just sit with really difficult things and not rush to move away from them. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a real strength of this um, episode and of the book generally, regardless of kind of where people are with interacting with this topic. Um, and also to say there's so much from the book that we didn't get a chance to cover in this episode. So um, do you really encourage you to um, check it out? It's such a ri- rich theological resource. And uh, yes, yeah, so only sorry that we couldn't talk with Dr. O'Donnell longer about that book. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual places, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it very much if you left us a rating and review. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. O'Donnell. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So really looking forward to hearing about your new book. And I wondered if we might just start by hearing a bit about your sort of journey through scholarship, where you situate yourself um, in kind of broader theological traditions uh, and some of the work you've done before uh, The Dark Womb. Yeah, sure. I mean, just a small question to kind of kick off, I guess. (laughs) No question. I'm I'm always interested in the relationship between theologies and and bodies and um, I, I Often I'm talking about a variety of different kind of ways of approaching that intersection, but I feel like that th- that's the kind of meeting point that I'm always really interested in because I'm convinced that that all theological work is embodied work. It always comes out of bodies that are present in particular situations and that respond and feel and um, find themselves in very particular um particular ways, and that that influences the kind of work that we do, whether we acknowledge it or not. So. I think um, if anyone ever asks me, oh, you know, what what kind of work do you do? I always say that that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in. Um, And if you kind of take a look through my scholarship, you'll find that that's manifested in quite a few different ways. But I guess I position myself mostly as um, a feminist constructive 
theologian that's got particular interest in trauma and trauma theology. So that's a lot of words, but basically for me, that means um, I'm, I'm interested in the embodied experiences that people have. And I'm interested in kind of constructive feminist trauma approaches to theology. They're all grounded in the realities of people's lives. And they're seeking to reimagine theology in ways that do justice, I think, to the experience of people's lives, but also that make a genuine difference to people's lives that might um, be transformative in some way. Um, or that's the hope, at least. Um, I think all of those constructive feminist trauma, they're all quite interdisciplinary ways of doing theology as well. So they're very open to insights beyond the kind of just the traditional world of theology. So trauma in particular wants to draw in um, psychology and philosophy as well as uh, as theology. So I see it as this kind of embodied interdisciplinary space that um, resists kind of easy categorization. I'm, I'm quite happy that um, that it's difficult to pigeonhole my work. I like that. When my, when my book first came out on Amazon, it was in Christian ethics and then it moved to Christian living and then it was in Christian ministry. And it isn't really any of those things. And yet it's all of those things as well. So um, so yeah, that's that's where I position myself, very conscious that in all of those um, traditions, those theological approaches, I'm you know standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm, I'm trying to do something new, but very conscious of the um, the people that have gone before me in those traditions. Yeah, thank you for that. That sort of um, intersection of all those different approaches is fascinating. And I think um, the way that manifests in your book is um, just really fresh and creative to read. Um, and thinking about theology as being embodied, uh, obviously, is a sort of foundation for this book in terms of thinking mm. about reproductive loss. Um, I wonder if you could just share with us a bit about what prompted you to write this book um, and what the process perhaps has been like of, of coming to some of those theological conclusions that shape it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and well, I say in the book, um, and I, you know, I've been very vocal probably over the last three or four years that um, the work that I'm doing here comes out of my own experience of reproductive losses, which were in my 20s. So it, I think it's been something like 12 or 13 years since I was last pregnant. Um, so I've got a bit of distance uh, within that. And um, for me, when I experienced those reproductive losses, I wasn't an academic. Um, I was a secondary school teacher, part of a local church. Um, I've always been an avid reader, though. And when this, um, this kind of strong belief in the power of books to get me through anything. And so when this, uh, you know, when this first miscarriage happened and then the second and then multiple further losses, I ran the church bookstore. So I was looking, I was, well, I must, there must be a book. There must be something I could read that would be useful. And, um, and I went looking and I didn't find anything. And that was almost as distressing as the miscarriages themselves, because it said to me, this experience, which, which had just devastated me, just wasn't important theologically. And, and for me, it was. It raised really profound and, and challenging theological questions. And I think anyone who's, who's been through that experience um, or, or been with people who've had those experiences of reproductive loss know that, you know, like all difficult experiences, it can raise really difficult questions. So I would say that probably over the last decade, I've been trying to work out what my faith looks like in the aftermath of that, uh, those experiences. Um, and obviously in that, in that decade, I uh, did my master's degree and my PhD in theology and religion and, and gained a whole different language to to um to think through these kinds of experiences so I found myself in a position where I felt like I could take on a writing project just about and then the pandemic hit so it wasn't a great time but um uh, for me the part of the project was articulating for myself really where where has my theology landed at the end of this what is it that I can confidently say I do believe I think as I got into the workings of the project, I realized that quite a lot of what I was doing was unpicking, um, un un uncovering and addressing kind of toxic theologies that I had absorbed uh, in the particular theological tradition I was part of. But also as I was reflecting, because my work at Sarum College is in um, theology and spirituality, I was, I was reflecting on the intersection between theology and spirituality and how, because we lack a good theology 
oh good but because we lack any theology of reproductive loss really the impact then on how we uh, how we care for people spiritually how we respond to them liturgically pastorally uh, that those two things are really entwined so that's why the book ends with a chapter on liturgical resources and spiritual resources because I felt like I wanted to demonstrate that that the the close relationship that the inter intertwining of of theology and spiritual practice that what we believe impacts on how we pray and if we're not certain in what we believe or if what we believe is uncritical and not not kind of um grounded in good theological reflection then what we pray can be dangerous and damaging um and yeah again i was drawing out of my own experience for that but ultimately there's there was two or three good things on reproductive loss all of them quite short so kind of blog length or journal article length um and i wanted to take the time to explore not just how my faith looks at the end of this but what it might mean to do theology through a body that has experienced these losses so my body a body that has experienced these losses what does theology through that body look like so in the title of your book and throughout you use the category of reproductive loss which is clearly in, intentionally a kind of a, a umbrella term for a number of things why did you choose that category for this book and and what uh, are you what do you include uh, mm -hmm. or what 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 is the scope of, of that category so the language uh, there is i've got i think at least half a chapter in the book on language and language choices i'm making and not making um or things that i'm excluding and including um I, i've been quite generous with the category of reproductive loss um i chose it i chose it because it's uh a, it's an encompassing term I, I, myself i'd had experiences of both miscarriage ectopic pregnancy and then subsequent infertility which isn't the theme of the book but i think a lot of what i say is relevant at least to people that may not necessarily have experienced reproductive loss but but have experienced infertility i'm drawing a slight distinction and and again i'm not i don't want to gatekeep this if people find it useful that's great but i am drawing a distinction between reproductive loss and um stillbirth because in the uk at least they're treated quite differently so um, in the UK, a stillbirth is anything that takes place post 24 weeks in pregnancy. Um, and it's treated very differently because you will deliver a baby in some way or other. You'll, um, you're allowed to have a funeral. You can register the baby and get a birth certificate and get a death certificate. Pregnancies before that, lost pregnancies lost before that 24th week are most likely treated as medical waste. You don't get to grieve. You don't get a funeral. You don't get a body you don't get to hold anything um as i understand it anecdotally that is becoming um a little bit more common but it is very much kind of hospital by hospital and and often you know chaplaincy by chaplaincy it, within hospitals where they do feel like they're able to offer that kind of support to people but but yeah most of the time those losses before 24 weeks there's nothing there there's no marker there's no grave to visit there's no memorial there's no celebration with family you know th there's nothing um so i do talk about the the body of the miscarrying person becomes a grave because there is no other grave there is no other physical site in which the miscarriage the pregnancy the baby well, again language is complicated there's no other place where that can be remembered in this book you're quite self-conscious about uh the way that you're doing theology could you explain the kind of method and approach that you take uh, in this book and how it differs from what people may be familiar with as systematic theology. Yeah, so self-conscious, I think is quite a good word for how I've how I've done this. Um, in the sense that it's a bit like, you know, when you do a maths exam and you get the right answer, but they want to show the kind of working out, like how did you get there? I very consciously wanted to include a, a little bit of a discussion of the methodological choices I was making in how I did this. Um, and I wanted to do that for a few reasons. Firstly, I think in some forms of theology, um, not necessarily like practical theology is probably better at this, but, but in the kind of constructive systematic kind of forms of theology, like how do you do the work? It, we often skip that bit in the books, you know, we are, and so I, I'm a teacher first and foremost, and I know that, 
uh, one of the things my students often struggle with is is working out what what methodology looks like when it's not a kind of qualitative research project you know where they might go off and um, interview people and that's quite not easy but you know there's quite set ways of doing that yeah I'm really conscious that I wanted to articulate something of this um, methodology because um, I wanted to be, to be really clear and obvious the kinds of choices that I was making, um, partly because I thought it'd be useful for teaching from, you know, to give to undergraduate students or mass, my students are MA students, so master's students who um, actually might benefit from seeing some of the thought process that have kind of gone behind this. But also I felt like what I wanted to do was quite new in in the, the kind of particular kinds of intersections that I was bringing together. Um, I mean, part of it's also ethnographic, which you know I, did, I didn't mention earlier, but um, there's, there's quite a lot of choices kind of going on that are kind of giving me a space in which to work at the, at the kind of end of it. So yeah, uh, part of it was a desire to, um, to, to just be super clear for my readers. And interestingly, my publisher said, we don't normally like chapters on methodology, because uh, they're not great for the kind of lay audience, but that they they liked how I'd done this and thought it was quite accessible to people who wouldn't necessarily be students of theology. So, yeah, I um I think the kind of constructive work that I'm doing is uh, not a, I don't think it's a reaction against systematic theology. It's just a different way of of um, understanding the theological process. Um, I one of my problems with kind of more traditional forms of systematic theology is that it's all kind of wrapped up and it's quite neat and you know we do 50 volumes and then at the end of it we've got everything and I, I'm just I suppose the kind of feminist theologian in me wants to say well, people's lives are just not like that you know um I I would be uh, I think theology needs to address the kind of mess and incompleteness of what it means to be human um and so the the kind of constructive work that I'm doing and it's grounded really in the work of people like Serene Jones and Paul Lakeland that kind of um uh, there's a really great book by Jason Wyman on the history of the constructive theology work group in the U.S. Um, and that I think has been really helpful for me in kind of articulating quite what it is that I'm doing it's a kind of theology that is open it's incomplete and it's iterative so I, I would hope that this is not the last word on reproductive loss and theology, but only the, you know, the first, and that I myself would come back and revisit this perhaps in 10 years time and, and rethink it, rework through it again, but that other people would take it on and do other work with it. That again is, is forward looking constructive theology. Paul Lakeland and Serene Jones talk about how they're no longer interested in simply rehearsing what theology has been in the past, but they want to construct theology that provide shelter for people in the present that might allow them to flourish. And I really think that that is, is a good encapsulation of the kind of work that, um, that I'm wanting to do here. Yeah, thank you so much for articulating that. And I'm very glad that the methodology chapter didn't get cut from the book because I feel like it's so um, valuable and also just fascinating to read as someone who um, spends more time in biblical studies than I do theology. So it was just really um, eye-opening for me. And um, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast in different ways is the need to acknowledge the kind of marked perspective that we all have, whatever the nature of the work is that we're doing. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I guess thinking about theology as always being embodied, that feels like such a helpful um, thing to resonate with and the different ways that you've articulated sort of how particularly you're then doing that. And uh, there was a quote that really struck me at the beginning or towards the beginning of your book uh, where you're talking about your method and you say, I'm aiming to build a theology that is inhabitable, beautiful and fruitful, one that provides shelter when required, a theology that can be lived in, a theology that brings life. And I thought, that absolutely is theology I would like to <laughs> to be absorbing as well so thank you for that so I guess I guess moving there from thinking on about method to um how did you sort of to bring all of that uh, academic uh, theoretical work to bear on thinking about the miscarrying body as a site of theological insight what different directions does that take you in in the book so I think I was quite keen because I'd written a journal article a few years earlier which formed um actually formed the kind of first chapter so kind of why don't we ever why don't we really talk about miscarriage why don't we talk about reproductive loss and and within that I had talked about one of the few other good pieces of work on 
um, reproductive loss is by Serene Jones, um, and it was written probably nearly 20 years ago now, and it's called Hope Deferred, and it's uh, about um, miscarriage, infertility, and stillbirth. And in that, she talks about the, the miscarrying body as revelatory of something of God that we cannot learn anywhere else. So she talks about how the miscarrying body holds death within it and yet is alive. And she says that is an image of the Trinity of what it means for the Trinity to hold the death of Jesus within it and yet still live that we cannot get anywhere else. And I was really struck by that because I, uh, part I, what I didn't want to do was try and write a theodicy of miscarriage because there isn't one there is and also I'm not a big fan of theodicies because I think no person in distress has ever gone yes give me a philosophical argument as to why you know um God has let this happen to me or you know God didn't have the power to stop it whatever it is and felt better I just that or certainly not in my experience and um and so I kind of wanted to um avoid explaining why does this happen whilst also um, offering something that might be pastorally useful for people um, and also picking up what I thought Serene Jones had started, but sadly she's never ever written anything more about it, that, the, that there is something theologically revelatory that we can, we can know God in a fresh way, we can know things about God in a fresh way through thinking or thinking through the, this miscarrying body and I felt like this um trinitarian idea that she put forward it just it was one of the things that really captivated me the, the first time I ever read her work and um I, I just thought oh there's so much more to say here so yes I think the way in which I the way in which I approached doing this was I'm the kind of person that works out what I want to say by writing and so although I'd been doing the thinking for quite a long time, I hadn't and I knew I'd landed somewhere where I felt quite happy to say I was a Christian and that I had, uh, you know, a, a faith in God. And yet I also acknowledged that these horrible things had happened to me. I felt like I'd come to a place where I was quite comfortable with that, but I'd never really tried to articulate it. So for me, it was a kind of sitting, you know, sitting down with the with a piece of paper and just trying to work out what were the things I wanted to talk about within this bearing in mind that I didn't want to get into theodicy in particular I did want to be pastoral um I I knew I wanted to produce something liturgical at the end I wanted to reflect on the particular particular reformed evangelical charismatic church that I had been in during the time that all these things had happened to me um, and that that does produce a very specific kind of theology. So it's interesting that I've talked to um, or I've given this, I've given papers based on the research at places that are predominantly Catholic and they don't recognise or they they recognise far less the kind of doctrine of providence that I'm talking about, for example, um, because they have a very different perspective on what it might mean for God to be providential. Uh, so it, it does, it is, um, yeah, part of this kind of, I talk a little bit about deconstruction. I guess it is a deconstruction of a particular kind of theology, not for the sake of critiquing that in its own right, but simply to say that when, when theology is unnuanced, it can be particularly problematic. Yeah, the, the, the topic of reproductive loss is, is one that's really uncomfortable for a lot mm -hmm. of people in both Christian circles and in broader society writ large. And the result of that is is often, as I think you've hinted at, this turn quick, easy turn to eschatology. Yeah. Whenever there's um, a uh, you know, oh, like I've I've experienced this horrible thing, and uh, there's um, immediately a, a turn to hope for a future pregnancy yeah. or uh, redemption of the body uh, in in the eschaton, etc. What are some of the problems that arise with that kind of approach? Uh, that you've you've already hinted at that as well. Uh, and how does your what in, what's the alternative that you are offering uh, in this book? Yeah, so I think one of the key things, uh, I guess, if people are not familiar with trauma theology, one of the key things to emphasize is that the rush to the resurrection and resisting the rush to the resurrection, the idea that you know, everything's OK because we have a victory, we have an ultimate victory in Jesus, Jesus's resurrection from the dead kind of um, spiritually bypasses 
any problems that we might need to to address that that's a really strong theme within trauma theology so people like Shelley Rambo for the last kind of 10 15 years or so have been writing about the problems that come when we don't give people enough space to process what has happened to them and when we expect them to rush to a kind of triumphant testimony everything's going to everything's fine or everything will be fine because Jesus has promised it kind of space too quickly so Shelley Rambo in her work um, Spirit and Trauma she talks about uh, the theology of remaining and she draws particularly on Holy Saturday rather so she what she wants to say is instead of rushing to Easter Sunday if we want to do justice to the experience of trauma all kinds of trauma we might need to learn to linger metaphorically and liturgically in Holy Saturday which is a place in which God is dead God is not yet uh, alive there is not yet a victory there is only defeat and yet God remains there God is still present there so she talks about a God who remains she talks about the thin uh, trickle of love that that remains through on on Holy Saturday uh, even though God is is both dead and not dead um Trinity gets very complicated on Holy Saturday and so yeah I'm drawing very much on uh on that particular I, idea that we we might need to slow down in our triumph not that we need to forget about it I'm not saying that at all um, and the same with eschatology like I think um particularly my chapter on hope I want uh, I want to distinguish between hope and optimism in particular I want to recognize the fact that because we have a hope in Jesus does not mean everybody gets to have successful pregnancies and everybody gets cured from cancer and you know um every, everything's kind of fixed out it's not a kind of prosperity gospel you know if I pray hard enough God will you know God will reward me in some way shape or form that that our hope is is an eschatological hope uh, of which we may get a foretaste here but the eschaton is not yet realized therefore to say to somebody you know you have a hope in Jesus and and you know Jesus is going to give you a baby is it's just nonsense it just theologically it's nonsense and pastorally it is brutal and cruel um and yet you know although it sounds it sounds funny it's common experience in certain types of Christian churches particularly in the church that I was in to have people pray and prophesy over you um and to claim this victory and hope in Jesus as something that could be applied then to your miscarrying body. And I wanted to just disrupt that. Um, I think feminist theologians tend not to be very interested in eschatology anyway, partly in reaction to the ways in which eschatological theologies have sometimes been used to kind of undermine need for action in the, in the present day. Same with, with liberation theologies, really. So eschatology is never the thing that is kind of first in my mind anyway, as a kind of feminist theologian. But I wanted to just unpick again, I suppose, deconstruct some of the unnuanced ways in which we talk about hope um, and resurrection and victory and kind of lift them up and apply them wholesale into circumstances for which they were never meant to be. It's certainly in my mind, at least never meant to be applied without doing away with any of those. So I don't want to get rid of hope altogether. I don't want to get rid of eschatology altogether. Um, I think we, you know, we, the resurrection is a victory, but I want us to be more cautious and nuanced in the ways in which we talk about them, particularly when it comes to praying with people and pastoral care of people. I think something that's really fascinating with the kind of holy Saturday language is um, there's ways in which that acts as an analogy where we're encouraged to sort of dwell in that difficult space, the space of that space of death in whatever format that's taking in life. But you've also written about um, kind of quite literally sitting with the death of Christ before the resurrection, thinking you, you've written this essay where you take the perspective of the women at the cross um, and think about what it means to process the trauma of witnessing um, the abuse and the murder of Christ uh, and then to reflect on that after the resurrection so conscious of the fact that the resurrection doesn't suddenly get rid of all that trauma but that we're still in that that we're in that place now of holding both trauma and um the joy of the resurrection um I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about that and mm. and how trauma theory perhaps is working in that essay in a way that's different to um seeing oneself as the sort of primary perspective uh, within trauma yeah and this really does highlight I suppose two key 
themes within trauma theology. So there's there's one particular strand that um, is taking kind of um, the author's trauma experiences. So for me, that was, you know, the experience of miscarriage. I think um, Serene Jones has written about being in New York at 9-11. Um, Shelley Rambo has written about the experience of Hurricane Katrina. Those um, taking those kind of experiences of the author and using them as a um, as a lens through which to do some theological thinking. The other strand, and I think it does work quite differently within trauma theology, is, is where there's a turn to the biblical text um, or to, to texts in general, because um, trauma theology gets has its roots in trauma theory, which really owes an awful lot to Carrie Carruth in, um, Kathy Carruth, sorry, in uh, the 1990s, who's doing a load of work on uh, trauma and literature, and ways in which we might apply a kind of hermeneutic lens of trauma to literature and what happens when we do that. She's particularly interested in Freud's work, um, Moses and monotheism. Um, and I know that those early trauma theologians like Shelley Rambo and Serene Jones owe an awful lot to Kathy Greek. So there is a literary strand within trauma theology that I do think works a little bit differently, where trauma becomes a hermeneutical lens through which to read a text specifically. Um, and Although the goal that might be something relatively similar, I think the process of getting there is distinct between those two things. So the piece that I wrote, um, which is called Surviving Trauma at the Foot of the Cross, um, for me, was a little bit different because I don't normally, I'm, you know, wouldn't call myself a biblical scholar. I don't normally work in the biblical in the biblical texts, um, although, you know, I don't like to be pigeonholed. So obviously happy to open up the Bible on occasion. I. I actually was asked to write a piece for, for the book and I was um, the, the book that it appears in. And I'd been thinking for a little while now about the um, the women in the in the gospel text. I'd written a couple of other pieces on on um, theological method, which I'd in trauma theology, which I'd used the four Marys in the gospel. And I was just really struck by the fact that this little group of people, which looks differently depending on which gospel text you look at but broadly speaking it's some of Jesus's it's his mum perhaps his aunt um the beloved disciple probably Mary Magdalene maybe a couple of other women and um they don't go so they are witnesses to the crucifixion um now I'm, I'm always keen to say that there are no such thing as traumatic events there are only traumatic experiences so no event in and of itself is default trauma it's only the way in which we experience it so you know the three of us could go through exactly the same uh, experience exactly the same event and we'd experience it differently one of us may be traumatized and the other two might not be so it's difficult i don't necessarily want to say that witnessing death like this group of disciples would have done is necessarily traumatic but um if you look at something like the um criteria for PTSD, witnessing death of a loved one, or even hearing of the unexpected death of a loved one, um, is, a, is recognised as a criteria that may be traumatic. So I was just really fascinated by that, because, of course, you know, Easter Sunday comes quickly, you know, it's you talk about three days, but you know, Friday evening to Sunday morning is not, it's not a long time, is it? Um, so Easter Sunday comes quickly, but I just wondered whether it was possible that the the tr the trauma response of their bodies might not necessarily dial down quite so fast, so that even though they might recognise that that um, the resurrection had happened, that they might still be traumatised by the fact that they had witnessed, um, but they witnessed the death of Jesus but what was more interesting to me was that these group of disciples then go on to become the witnesses you know they're the first uh, Mary Magdalene you know is the first witness to the resurrected Jesus so and witnessing is such a key category within trauma trauma theory trauma theology that um the idea that we uh, bear witness to uh, somebody's testimony of trauma that is a kind of creative act as in a procreative act that um, uh, something is created in the witnessing there and, and witnessing to, to trauma testimony has been a key category within trauma theory for a long time. So I just, I was fascinated with the idea that their trauma, that their testimony, their gospel, their good news 
might also be a trauma testimony or, or a, a testimony that is shaped by trauma. Um, and what happens when we read when we read that back into the narrative, in a sense, quite speculative, because as I say, you know, we don't know whether or not they were traumatized. Maybe they were um, in the grand tradition of feminist theology, though, re and, and feminist approaches to biblical studies, you know, reading the gaps and absences within a text is um, is a useful way of engaging with what's not said as well as as what is there. So I found, um, yeah, I found it to be quite a fascinating, fascinating kind of journey through this um, account. I think you see um, particularly in the seeing and not seeing and the recognizing and not recognizing that goes on within Jesus, you do see some echoes of trauma there. And for me, that just really reinforced this idea that the victory of Jesus's death on the cross of Jesus's resurrection doesn't wipe out the, tra the trauma. So in the same way, the kind of echoes that within the book, you know, having another baby is great, but it doesn't wipe out or magically erase the, the, devastation that you might have felt with the one that you lost there. Candida Moss has written a book called uh, Divine Bodies. She makes it appropriately, I think, a big deal of the fact that Jesus still carries around scars in his hands, yeah. even in his resurrected body. And what you said ma made mm. me think of that, like even even the perfect body retains yeah. the the marks of trauma. Absolutely. And uh, and and in, in some respects reharmonizes them, but in, in no respect, a, a, completely obliterates them or yeah um, makes them forgotten or erases them or something yeah and um Shelley Rambo's second book is called Resurrecting Wounds and uh, it's I mean it's an interesting book um but one of the things that I always remember about this is that she talks about how Calvin was very offended by the presence of the scars on Jesus's body and would rather have kind of had them theologically erased from the gospels that they from the from the um New Testament because that was problematic for his kind of understanding of the eschatological body and the victory of Jesus. Um, so fortunately, Calvin doesn't get his way and then Jesus remains scarred, which I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of power in that and a lot, mm. a lot of rich theological resource. Um, and I know that you talk about the sort of remaking of the self, uh, avoiding this language of recovery mm. or healing, which might imply that yeah, there's this kind of finite point when you can sort of dust off um, trauma and kind of say yeah. that, you know, it's not part of my body anymore. So part of the way that you explore this, I guess, to, to bring us back to the conversation we're having mm -hmm. about hope is um, actually wrestling with hope and hopelessness. Um, and I think the conversation we had earlier distinguishing between hope and optimism was mm -hmm. quite useful in that. Um, and also thinking about hope as having ethical action implied in that somehow, that this yeah. is not just a kind of... Um, yeah, it's, it's not op just optimism, actually. It's mm -hmm. not this kind of faint, positive feeling, uh, but it's more than that. Um, I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit more for us and how these, how hope and hopelessness sort of co-mingle, I suppose, from the perspective of uh, the way you've written this book, mm -hmm. thinking about the miscarrying body, but perhaps also more, more broadly than that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I wanted to emphasise, and I, I use the, this kind of language of um, an apophatic practical theology throughout, throughout the book, um, because I wanted to pick up on the, the apophatic tendency to uh, hold things in tension together, so to hold a paradox together. And so, I, you know, doing that in various different places throughout the book, but I think particularly in the chapter on hope and hopelessness, where I, again, I, you know, I don't want to get rid of hope. Um, I have been accused of being too hopeless in my work. Um, and I think that's a fair accusation. Uh, uh, I, but what I really want to do is to, is to hold the two things in tension because I actually think hopelessness is really important. Hopelessness is what spurs us to action. When we do not think we have any hope, as in nobody's coming to fix this for us, and so we feel hopeless, actually there is an ethical imperative. If we want this to change, there is nobody who's going to change this but us. And so um, I think there are some contexts then that works out very very clearly, very easily is ethical action. I think uh, in the context of reproductive loss, what, what, what does it mean to be hopeless and therefore to require ethical action? I think there's a few different things. Uh, I think primarily what I'm emphasizing in the book is that this sense of hopelessness requires ethical action in that 
if we want to do justice to the experience of reproductive loss theologically, if we want to be able to help people survive and flourish ultimately in the aftermath of these kinds of experiences, we do need to not, to not expect anything to be kind of magically healed by this, which is a part of the reason why I'm, I'm always hesitant around language of healing and recovery. Um, it implies a kind of, or recovery at least, it's got a kind of backwards look, like I would recover, I would go backwards to the previous time where my uh, body did not feel like this, or where my experience had not happened. Well, that, you know, that's never going to happen. And uh, our kind of research with trauma survivors indicates that they are going to spend the rest of their lives being trauma survivors. Um, and there may, come, there may come periods of time where, you know, they don't have to think about their trauma at all. And that's fantastic. But of course, you know, various things might trigger flashbacks and hallucinations and nightmares and dissociation at, at any point in a person's life. So the, um, the language of remaking of the self to me has a more authentic kind of ring to it. And it is the language that trauma survivors themselves tend to prefer. So I would always want to be led by by what trauma survivors themselves want to articulate. So, so yeah, I think in this kind of apophatic sense, I'm wanting to articulate a way of holding these two things together, recognizing that we always have an eschatological hope, um, you know, of the, the new heaven and the new earth, which, you know, I don't talk particularly about, but I'm not wanting to do away with um, completely. But to what extent is does that, automatically fix or cover up or um heal what's happening in the present well not a lot is 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 where i've concluded and i guess because i've ended up in this slightly processy theology kind of um understanding of providence i'm i'm really wanting to emphasize that that god is seeking human action through which to impact the world and that it is human it is it is human action alongside the presence of god that changes things that that affects change um and so there's an ethical imperative there to yes it's god remains but that doesn't absolve us from having to then do something as well so in one of your chapters you talk about how the miscarrying body uh performs both the the Imago Dei and also the ineffable nature of God. Um, can you just draw that out uh, for us? Yeah, and I think I'm um, I'm really using Serene Jones's work on on the Trinity and the miscarrying body as a kind of springboard into this. As I said earlier, I think I think she was really onto something there. And you know, I appreciate you know people go through phases with their research, and she's never kind of circled around back to this. So I'd love to. I'd love to um I'd love to sit and have a chat with her and watch about what she thinks. Um, but yeah, I think um again, I'm drawing on some work that I did earlier where I was thinking particularly about Yamago Day as not something taxonomic, but something that is is performative or or is also performative at least. Um, and I think I found that to be quite a rich stream within my own theological thinking to say, what is it of God that we are performing? What are we doing? And when we when we consider that through the miscarrying body or body mind, I think I've used in this chapter, I think there is some interesting revelation or, or theological thinking that can come out of this. So I think one of the things that it is performing particularly is this um, ineffable, mysterious kind of nature of God, that there is something inexplicable happening in, in the miscarrying body medically inexplicable because it's one of this you know massively under research but theologically inexplicable as well that I think reflects the limits of our language uh, again kind of picking up that kind of apophatic sense that that the the limits of our theological vocabulary uh, to, to be able to talk about God so in that sense it's kind of performing the mystery that is that is God because we we cannot explain what is happening here um partly at least because we we cannot explain the nature of god um which is an uncomfortable thing for a theologian to kind of admit really isn't it because you know that's our bread and butter to be thinking about to be thinking about the the kind of uh, the nature of god i think it it demonstrates to us that god is mysterious and it is unknowable um 
but it, I think one of the other things that I wanted to pick up was that this kind of sense of vulnerability and openness of the miscarrying body mind that it it is a body that is not supposed to be open it's supposed to be sealed shut and growing a growing a pregnancy um, and yet it is not it is it is problematically open um, and so I'm I'm drawing here on somewhere somewhere by Catherine Keller where she talks about passages blocked in the moment of doubt of defense clear and open like pores bodily and metaphoric the openings in the skin the leaf or the rock through which the world passes the passages of breath air food mucus moisture fold one life into another I, I would want to add blood and bodily tissue to Keller's list there but I think there is a sense in which the, the this kind of porous open miscarrying body reflects uh, and reveals something of the um, perichoretic kind of nature of God, this idea of being um, entwined, um, uh, open to the other, uh, uh, kind of co-mingling uh, in a really interesting sense. Um, and so I go on to talk about the, the miscarrying body as being Eucharistic in some sense, you know, it is bloodshed and, you know, flesh broken. Um, it is uh, what is lost, the, uh, the, the pregnancy that is lost is part of the body of Christ. How, how can it not be? How can it, how can it be absent, the body of Christ within that? Um, and that there is some kind of interesting biological commingling that goes on in pregnancy in that once a pregnancy is lost, actually parts of the, of the pregnancy's DNA remain within the pregnant woman's body. So there's some again, kind of Trinitarian commingling of one and yet multiple and yet self and other that are all kind of held in uh, complicated and messy tension um, together with each other here. And I felt like there was some opportunity really for uh, just exploring what the, the, the horrible and yet beautiful miscarrying body might tell us about the nature of God as it's performing something of the nature of God, the Imago Dei. Yeah, thank you so much for unpacking that. And um, I, I know something you stress throughout in the book a lot is sort of resisting binaries and sitting mm -hmm. with the complexity and, and ambiguous questions. And I think um, that chapter in particular does that really powerfully in helping us, um, yeah, ask some of these um, kind of questions about the mystery of God and to, to think about that more deeply, which is really helpful. Um, so I guess as a sort of final question, um, what would you like to see differently in the church as a result of this work? How can we do a better job of um, ministering to, to people who've, who've gone through miscarriage and reproductive loss and, and also for people in that position? Um, what would you like to see differently in terms of how they're supported? So I think there's some quite simple things um, that can be that can be done that it would be great to see done both in local churches and in the church more broadly. I think we need to break the silence around miscarriage and reproductive loss. Something like one in five, 20 percent of all of all known pregnancies will end in reproductive loss. The likelihood is that 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 number is probably much higher. It could be as high as 50 percent, which means that in every single church, in every local community, there are people who've gone through this kind of experience. And for some of them, it might just be a blip on the way to a successful pregnancy. But for lots of people, it is absolutely devastating. And the church has a responsibility, it has a, you know, particularly if you think about the Church of England, you know, it has a cure of souls for everybody within the parish. Um, so I think it's important to start breaking the silence about this, that we might, um, I've never heard anybody talk about miscarriage from the pulpit. Um, I think I think there is an opportunity to do that. My experience is the minute you start talking about reproductive loss, everybody wants to talk about it. Um, and so when you create spaces for people to share their experiences, both male and female, non-binary, I think, uh, you know, miscarriage can impact on lots of people and families. It's not an individual experience. It hits a community. It hits a family. Um, so we can break the silence there and, and create space for people to simply tell their stories, to be heard and to be witnessed to. Very important in that process of post-traumatic remaking, it, it being, being witnessed. Um, I think recognising that for some people they will need some kind of liturgical or ritual um, provision within this. I, I talk a little bit in the book about how 
um, miscarriage disrupts the kind of rite of passage so that you, you never get to the parent bit and you're kind of left in limbo kind of stuck in the middle of a rite of passage and, and actually it can be very useful to provide a ritual or a liturgy that kind of helps shift you out of that kind of marks the end of it um, helps us move forward and so I provided a couple of those in the final chapter of, of the book some things that would be more suitable for kind of friends in a living room and things that might be you know kind of more formal baby loss um, remembrance service perhaps um, there's baby loss um, baby loss awareness week is October every year so yeah recognizing that we we need to perhaps to provide something for people uh, and that might be in the chaplaincy it might just be amongst friends it might be in the church um, but I think what I'm really hoping that this book will do is just start to give people a bit of language to talk about it. So it's one of the reasons why I was so keen to put some prayers and spiritual practices and the liturgies in the final chapter was because I know when this happened to me, I couldn't pray. There was nothing I could say. I'd got absolutely nothing. And where I did occasionally find prayers that were about miscarriage, they were so sentimental or so, um, you know, saccharine sweet about about the nature of my body that I just they didn't resonate with me at all and and as I said earlier I wanted to show the relationship between theology and spirituality and the way in which what we believe impacts then on, on what we do so yeah I wanted to give people some language um, and gratifyingly I've already had people kind of get in touch and say oh I used this prayer with a couple who just experienced pregnancy loss or um, I've got a little active remembrance, which people have used and drawn on already as well. So, um, yeah, I think uh, clergy, pastoral workers, chaplains are stressed and busy. And so I wanted to make it easy to put some of this into practice in just little ways that I know for me would have been really meaningful if somebody had been able to offer that to me at the time. Well, so grateful for you for taking the time to do that. And um, I'm sure that many of our listeners will also uh, appreciate being encouraged to break the silence and mm. to um, access those resources. Um, it's yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable chapter at the end. So um, do encourage people to, to look that up. And thank you for taking the time to do it um, and for coming on to speak to us today. Really grateful for your time and for this great conversation. Thanks, Grace. It's been really uh, it's been so interesting to hear from both you and Logan and the kind of um, ideas that have really struck you in the book. So thank you for taking the time to read it and talk to me.